0: Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I am so thrilled to have my next guest here. We have Tom Cole, who is not only the author of this incredible book, CEO Leadership, but he's also a retired partner, very, very senior partner from a firm called Sidley Austin, which you may know as Sidley. Uh, But Tom and I have uh, gotten to know each other. Actually, his daughter runs a food company as well. And we met through uh, her. And he is just a wealth of information, but also his book, where he's got a couple of books out there, another one called Collaborative Crisis Management. But today, we're going to get to talk about CEO leadership and all of uh, the things around, around that within the book. So, Again, Tom was actually at Sidley, recently retired, and he joined in 1975 and quickly rose through the ranks to focus on public company M&A, as well as advising CEOs and boards on a broad range of issues, including corporate governance. And he's truly an expert on topics of building boards, corporate governance, as well as fiduciary duties. And Besides offering us the opportunity to talk to him about this book, just in general, I just think he's uh, he's seen a lot over the years with all kinds of boards.
1: So it's just
0: such a pleasure to be able to have him here. So without further ado, welcome, Tom. Excited to have you here.
1: Thank you, Kara. I'm excited to be here, and uh, thanks for that kind introduction.
0: Absolutely. Well, this, as you and I were discussing, I was excited to have you on also because we have a lot of entrepreneurs on the podcast, uh, also a lot of CEOs and people who hopefully are... Thinking about maybe one day running their own company or running someone else's company. And the topic of boards always comes up as how do I build a board? How do I, you know, do it right? What if things don't go right? And I'd love, you know, as a starting point to really have you talk about your career looking back and how did you get into kind of this? kind of law more than anything what what was it that really interested you the most
1: well i i i think the right word is stumbled i stumbled into <laughs> okay. it i thought i wanted to be a corporate lawyer i didn't quite know what that meant back in 1975 that really meant you a securities lawyer so i spent a lot of time doing securities work i was i was the young associate on the federal express ipo oh, wow. forever ago. Amazing, but then things evolved, and I I, be, I actually I, I was I was taken out on a, on a loaner basis, and was as a young again as a young partner, was general counsel with one of our large clients, and from that I got bitten by the M and A bug, so I started doing a lot of public company M and A, uh, which continues really through the bulk of my career, and if you do public company M and A, you're constantly advising CEOs and boards. And you're advising them on making big decisions. And so that, that leads pretty quickly to, uh, you know, thinking about corporate governance, particularly from a decision-making standpoint. So from the stumble into the, uh, into the practice to the evolution of the practice, that's where I ended up. And I've just finished uh, 47 and a half years at the same law firm.
0: Amazing. Did you ever think that you would be there for your entire career?
1: Well, I'm a child of the sixties, so I was going to come out of uh, law school, uh, you know, pay off debts or whatever, uh, and, you know, make a little money and then go off and do good things. But what I found was that I was really stimulated by the work, stimulated by the people I was around, not only my colleagues, but the clients we worked with, you know, the C suite, pretty fancy group. Right. Uh, they're very stimulating people. And I also found that I could do, do some public good by doing civic and charitable work. So. I've served on the University of Chicago board since 2001, hard to believe. Uh, I was chair of, uh, of, of uh, the hospital and a major academic medical center for a number of years and I've done other things like that. So it's, it's just a nice combination. And then finally, um, I was able to teach, uh, take, take some time, do some teaching, both, uh, to undergraduates, I had a course on leadership and then I taught for over 10 years. Uh, a honor to law and business students on corporate governance.
0: It's amazing. Well, and I'm, I'm also going to make you blush. I, I was doing some research on you. So the Thurgood, uh Marshall Legacy Award, I mean, amazing. Absolutely amazing. So what an honor. So your practice was... Pr- How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. Primarily public company M&A and advising uh, CEOs and boards on a broad range of issues. And as you mentioned, you taught at the University of Chicago as well. When you look at deciding to write a book about this, what was sort of the purpose of of wanting to get a book out there?
1: Well, I, I guess I, I, there were a couple of motivations. One was I thought it would be fun to see if I could, in effect, summarize the courses I had taught so long. And secondly, I had some good friends as I was approaching retirement say, you really ought to write a memoir. If you, as, as you say, Kara, I've seen a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't want to do a full memoir, but I kind of interlaced some uh, vignettes in the book uh, as sidebars, uh, to the, really to illustrate the substantive points I was trying to make. So there's the bit of the memoir. And then that now here is going to sound totally immodest, but uh, I really think that our economy and our society uh, is better off if important institutions, whether it's in corporate America, public or private, than other institutions are well run and well mm-hmm. led. And well governed, so you know. Hopefully, this book will help some of that happen to the extent anybody reads it.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And what do you hope that people take away? I mean, I felt that although I'm not an attorney, as you know, I'm married to a recovering one, but it's. uh, But I just found that the book was really easy to read. I didn't think that it was a you know, a lot of, you you didn't have to have gone to the University of Chicago uh, law school in order to really understand this. I really felt like it was not super simple speak, but it was definitely something that was digestible, that uh, was helpful and had me thinking more than anything from a strategic standpoint. So, but more than anything, some people may not Understand because they haven't built boards, maybe they're not CEOs. What is corporate governance and how would you define that for people?
1: Well, again, coming from my MA background, I, I, I come at corporate governance as a decision making process. There are others who are practitioners of corporate governance and they're more almost on the regulatory side, you know, mm-hmm. what's required by the SEC, by the stock exchanges. And you got to be able to do both. Uh, but so my focus is decision making. What is, you know, who gets to make decisions? What are the best practices to follow in making important decisions? For whose benefit are decisions to be made. That's the shareholder stakeholder debate that has literally mm-hmm. been going on for a century. Uh it's, it's quite prominent now in the in the public mind. And then what are the standards by which decision makers are held accountable? Like gets into fiduciary duties and the like. And then finally, and you know, how do you compensate? How do you compensate the decision makers, particularly for those uh, for whom it's a day job, that is the management team.
0: And so, private companies versus public companies—obviously, you know there's the SEC oversight. But it, what are like the main differences uh, that that you've seen are kind of the the things that if you're not a public company, you don't have to worry about it, but maybe you do have to worry about it as a private company board.
1: Right. Right. Well, the biggest difference is, and this is going to get into academic speak, but the academicians call it the agency problem or the, which is easily summarized as the separation of ownership and control. In a public company, the owners aren't really in the boardroom and they have very mm-hmm. few decisions that are left to them to make. I mean, they vote on directors and they, there, there are a few decisions that shareholders ultimately have to decide on but uh, largely uh, only after receiving a recommendation from the board. So the public company has this separation of ownership and control. There are WAGs who say that uh, institutional owners themselves uh, are not the owners either because they're investing on behalf of beneficiaries. So one WAG called it separation of ownership and ownership. Uh, But besides that, in in a private company, though, you've got the owners in the boardroom as well as probably in the C-suite, and so that that's a big difference. Now, where it's not a difference is uh, that all public company and private company uh, uh, managers and directors have fiduciary duties to all of the shareholders, all the shareholders, not just not just the shareholder who brought them into the boardroom, but all the shareholders. And so that that's a that's a very important concept that I, I'm 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 fairly confident most private company directors are aware of, but uh, they sometimes need to be reminded.
0: Yeah, definitely. For I think that that is definitely the case. So the subtitle, Navigating the New Era in Corporate Governance, how has it changed over the years? And maybe share what you believe um, are the
1: key changes yeah, and why. Sure. Well, let me, let me focus on the notion, new era. A, a good friend of mine who is a retired justice of the Delaware Supreme Court, likes to say that all corporate law started in 1985. That's, that's a bit of a stretch, but here's what happened in 1985. There was the seminal case of Smith versus Van Gorkum. People sometimes know it by the, by the company that was involved, the TransUnion union case. And that was the first time a board of directors was held liable for breach of fiduciary duty under a gross negligence standard because they essentially just totally, uh, allowed the CEO to do what he wanted. Jerry Van Gorken was the CEO at the time, uh, which was to sell the company to the Pritzker family. And they did it without much information, without much debate, without much deliberation. They were summoned to a meeting on a Saturday morning without being told what it was about. And they approved the deal. Now, here's what's interesting. They approved the deal. It was at a very large premium to the market value or to the market price. Uh, and the deal was approved by a overwhelming majority of the shareholders. Having said that, notwithstanding that, they were held liable for breach of the duty of care because they did such a bad job. So that represented a pivot from management-centric decision-making, you know, let's do what Jerry wants, to board-centric decision-making on big subjects. The big subject, obviously, being to sell the company. Now, here's how it's evolved since then. Uh, In about the same time, the big decision was, do we resist a hostile tender offer? It's a decision not to sell the company. There, again, it it became incumbent on the board to do a good job in reaching a, 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 a reasonable conclusion on that. And then as things have gone over time, the list of what gets called the big decision has increased. Uh, there, there are a number of additional things uh, that are now in the big decision category. Uh, you know, one is uh, uh, selecting directors. I mean, it used to be, frankly, that a public company CEO and perhaps in many instances a private company CEO, maybe more appropriate in a private company context, gets to pick who the directors are going to be. But a public in the public company context, it used to be, the CEO said, all right. Here's, here's somebody I want to put on the board and, and the board and the members would just nod their head. Now it's, it's, it's been offloaded to a, a totally independent nominating committee. Uh, and very often if the CEO says, I would like this person on the board, that's the kith, kiss of death to the nomination because the, the, the independent board members feel like, you know, well, maybe, maybe he's trying to pack the board. He or she is trying to pack the board. So selecting directors, uh, is now one of the big decisions. Uh, CEO succession. It used to be the outgoing CEO would say, "Here's my successor." I mean, look, look, probably the, the last extreme example of that was Jack Welch, who said, mm-hmm. "I have three candidates. This is one, this one's got to be my uh, successor, and the other two I'm going to fire so they don't get in his way." And that that was dramatic. Uh, CEO compensation is now the big decision, and broader broader compensation decisions, allocation of capital. You know, do we do a stock buyback, and so on. Again, a lot of these big decisions come with a recommendation from the board or the CEO and the management team, but ultimately the buck stops at the board. Strategic direction, and a big one is risk management. Risk management, Mm -hmm. the overall overall structure for risk risk management, the overall structure for corporate compliance is planted firmly uh, in the board, and it has that responsibility. And I think this is generally a good good direction. It's good, it's good for a management team to have to be very thoughtful in bringing a, a something to the board for decision. It makes them think about it more. I've just observed it. And, and you, 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 you're probably aware, when, you, when you're kind of bringing something to the board, you really want to make sure you've got your ducks in a row. And you want to bring it to the board in the right way, with the right information, uh, and to be able to answer all the questions, right? So that, that creates a discipline around the decision-making that I think is overall positive. It can get carried away uh, if you have boards that don't really understand their role and step over the line of what they should be doing. Uh, it can also get in the way if, uh, if boards have become too risk-averse, And one of the one of the great concepts of corporate law and applies to public companies and private companies is the business judgment rule, which is where where board where courts say they will defer to boards and their business judgment so long as it's been a thoughtful process and there is any rational basis for the decision. The business judgment Mm -hmm. rule is highly protective. It also, and this is getting into too much law, but I'll do it anyway. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, I love it. The the burden of proof that a board has failed to exercise a good business judgment is on the plaintiff. Hmm. So there is a presumption in favor of the board. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and the plaintiffs or someone who on a the decision can, can can contest it, but they, but they've got to prove their case. Unfortunately, going back to Smith versus Van Gorkum, it was way too easy for us to prove the case.
0: Yeah. So interesting. So uh, I often hear, entrepreneurs talking about shareholder rights agreements and attorneys talking about shareholder rights agreements. How does that play into what you're talking about? I mean, if, if, for example, um, obviously you're talking a lot about public companies, but even private companies is the shareholder rights agreement. Does that actually, uh, Trump sort of the, uh, the ability of shareholders to really have a voice yeah. in some of these things?
1: Well, there, 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 there are two types of shareholder rights agreements. Uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the shareholder rights agreement that public companies think about is the poison pill, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the takeover defense. Uh, uh, the shareholder rights agreement is frankly, it's a euphemism. Poison pill is a little more accurate than mm-hmm. you are right down mm-hmm. But then in private companies, you have agreements where the shareholders delineate beyond what is required by the corporate statutes, uh, you know, certain rights, uh, you know, yeah. Go long tag along, rights, that that kind of thing. Uh, those mm-hmm. those rights supplement what the what the corporate statute requires, and the corporate statutes, generally uh, speaking, are, are are quite enabling. Uh, they say, you know, if 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 the, the shareholders and boards can agree to certain things, there are some things that shareholders uh, really cannot take. Uh, and ultimately, the, again, the buck stops in the boardroom largely. And so uh, there, there are a number of decisions that, that ultimately have to be made by the board.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I've seen, though, for example, I, I was just talking to another entrepreneur about uh, her board, and it seemed like there was this definite four against three kind of mentality that was going on, and it was definitely people that were... Picked by them. I mean, you talked about a CEO picking people uh, to be on a board, but you know it happens on the investor side of things as well. Sure. And I think that it's a uh, it it, especially when people are building companies. I'm finding that that is a consistent thread. um, That you know, maybe I don't know how you get around that. Exactly. But it's, it, it seems like it's a, a lot different when it's a public company, but when it's a private company, it just seems consistent all over the place as people are building their boards out.
1: Yeah. And you know, part of that is due to the, the uh, as I was talking about the separate, the agency problem and the separation of ownership and control. I mean, you got the owners in the boardroom. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm, while most of my practice was with public companies, so I've certainly been around uh, private companies. And what's interesting is to observe a private company that's just gone public with, with the same board intact, you know, not a lot of new sort of outside professional director types. Um, those board meetings feel more like staff meeting than yeah. public company board meeting, right? You get yeah. into the, one of my favorite stories is about a guy who became, he was a public company CEO type. He would be, became the CEO of a of a company that had just gone public. And he walked into the boardroom and he's, you he, he just couldn't believe it that people were talking over each other and whatnot. And so he said that it was just like, uh, the Lord of the Flies. And remember the, uh, the cock shell? He said, yeah, this is the cock shell. He held up his pen. He said, if you want to speak, you have to hold this pen and we will pass it around, but we're going to take turns because listening is more than just, uh, just waiting for your turn to speak and people should be able to. Everybody should be able to uh, interact and, and give their point of view.
0: So board oversight of management, you talk about that in the book. Is it a good thing? Or is, it, uh, is it a bad thing? I mean, how much should a board actually be involved in the decisions that, that management is making inside of the company?
1: Um, there are a couple ways of looking at this. First of all, board oversight of management is generally a good thing unless it goes too far. And mm-hmm. one exercise that I've done with public company boards, and I think it would work with private company boards, is to sit down and, and I would talk about this in the book, periodically have an understanding between the management and the board what decisions are in the, in the exclusive purview of the mm-hmm. management. That is, they can make those decisions themselves. Sometimes it relates to a dollar threshold. Sometimes it relates to a, uh, an issue that could be more qualitatively reputational, like a, a, a reduction in force, that sort of thing, uh, or bringing a lawsuit, that that, that that kind of thing. But anyway, the board and the CEO and the management team are to sit down and periodically say, all right, these are the decisions that the management can make without having to go to the board. And I've had a lot of, uh, I've had CEOs say, why would I ever want to engage in that? And the answer is, So that when you make decisions and somebody on the board gets huffy and says, by what right did you make that decision without coming to us? You can say, you told me I could. And it has to be done periodically because things change in a company. Uh, Mm -hmm. companies grow larger. So those dollar thresholds should probably go up as a reflection of a, a, a resetting of what's a material, uh, decision, uh, Companies uh, can decide to go off and and take a a, a a left turn in strategy or a right turn in strategy, do something very different, go to China instead, you know that kind of thing. And and in that in those instances when things change, board oversight probably would be taken up a bit. The problem with board oversight, and this this really this really came up in the Enron era, which was mm-hmm. that so many boards were freaked by Enron. Uh, at that, that, they became very risk averse, but they also became over. They were overemphasizing the oversight part, and they were underemphasizing the fact that they're there to give advice, right? And a board, sh- a board should be a a a a rich source of advice for a CEO. Now there are a lot of CEOs who frankly don't want it; they don't want mm-hmm. the advice, but. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the wrong board or you've got the wrong attitude on the part of the CEO. And what one of the one of the criticisms I've heard from boards, and I do annual board evaluations, which is another important subject. One of the criticisms I've heard from boards is CEO will come in and and not tell us what they really wanted to buy some at the beginning mm-hmm. of the meeting. This is this is the, this is what I want the takeaway to be. I I need you to help me with this hard issue. And sometimes CEOs don't do that because they lack self-assurance and they feel like they have to be, I, I usually said, they have to be strong and masterful at all time. Well, yeah. in, in fact, they need to show a little bit of vulnerability. I mean, you know, you don't want to show huge vulnerability, but a, a little bit of, uh, I really need your advice on this. I could really use it. And sometimes that's best done in the board meeting or sometimes it's best done in one on ones between board meetings. A, a really savvy ceo will invest the time in doing those those calls and even visits between board meetings, but they should be substantive, not social
0: definitely but and what about if you've got board members uh that are not just talking to the ceo but are also talking to other members um of the team like is that overstepping your grounds of a, of a board? Cause I've also heard that happening um, where maybe strategic direction is, you know, maybe they don't like a marketing campaign. And have you ever thought about doing something like this? And I, I think sometimes it's lack of experience of a board member going in and trying to influence that, but what can you do about that?
1: You start with Again, an understanding, an explicit understanding between the board and the CEO about what's the protocol. Some CEOs are perfectly comfortable saying, Look, I don't care. You can call anybody in the C suite. They'll often say, I don't want you to call anybody below that because, you know, they're if if somebody in middle management or lower management gets a call from a from a director, they'll freak. And if a director says, you know, I would really like an analysis done of this and that and the other thing. You know they're 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 tying up that individual, uh, and worse. Uh, they're sometimes saying, "And I want you to send that to me only." That's wrong. Any information that goes to a director should go to all directors, right? Mm-hmm. But but this is largely about just having an understanding. Um, yeah, uh, and for the most part, um, it, it, it kind of depends. Right? For example, the chair of a compensation committee should have. Uh, unbridled conversations with the CHRO, uh, the chair of the audit committee ought to be able to pick up the phone and talk to the CFO or the uh, in, totally. you know, the yeah. I- internal auditor or the external auditors at any point in time. But but going beyond that and and sort of sharpshooting uh, the marketing campaign uh, by going around the CEO that's this not a good idea. What what that director should do is is at the board meeting at the board meeting say. I really think that the full board should get a further analysis of this. Again, getting back mm-hmm. to the decision-making thing, you know, I'm, I'm, if, if this is an appropriate part of our oversight, I, I think we would all benefit from having more information so we can help you, we can advise you better. It's not just the oversight.
0: Definitely. Well, and I think so. I guess that boils down to is is that a fiduciary responsibility, right? Because maybe that's disrupting businesses as normal, and it's upsetting people. Like, is that is that allowed at a board level, whether it's a private company or a public company?
1: I mean it it needs to be overt, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. there ought to be, like I said, just an understanding of what of what the ground rules are. And one of the most important ground rules, I've already said it, is that any analysis done for one director gets shared with everybody. I mean there 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 is there is a fiduciary duty, and we can then get into fiduciary duties more broadly, but there's a fiduciary no, it, duty. It, that's great. There's a fiduciary duty on the part of a director not to withhold pertinent information from the other director. Directors don't have fiduciary duties to each other like partners do, but it's a fiduciary duty to the corporation not to withhold information that is vital to the other directors to make decisions. And interestingly enough, it's also a fiduciary duty on the part of the executives, the management team, to to proactively provide information and analyses to board members that are needed for them to make decisions.
0: Interesting. So, and that applies to private companies as well as public companies.
1: Absolutely. Uh, yeah, they, they, the only the only part of the corporate law is not really the corporate law, but the uh, the securities laws don't apply uh, to uh, to private companies. But I'll give you an example. So, there's a securities requirement for disclosure, right? Mm-hmm. There is actually a fiduciary duty of candor and disclosure. Have, by any in any corporation. So, if if in a private company you've got something that is a big enough decision that the statute or the shareholders agreement says we have to go to the shareholders for their approval, the standard of information flow to the shareholders for their vote is identical to what's required hmm. uh, under the securities law. And they, they, then in the outside of the vote. And outside of asking shareholders for their approval or action, uh, there's also a fiduciary duty of candor not to lie to them, Mm -hmm. which you would hope, right? Yeah. But it's actually a fiduciary duty.
0: Interesting. Have you seen any examples uh, recently where that's been actually brought up? Not to put you on the spot, but I'm just curious, like, has it, you know, because obviously we all want to, have these in place without actually, you know, having a lawsuit over it. You want the company to be in uh, continuing to grow. But has there ever been a situation where uh, you remember a case out there that maybe this ended up happening?
1: Curious. Well, it, it often has happened, and these are publicly reported situations yeah. or their opinions of the court. Uh, often happens in the context of an M and A deal. And mm-hmm. it goes way back to a case from the 80s called the McMillan case, where the court, for the first time that I'm aware of, uttered the phrase "fraud on the board." Mm-hmm. They said there were there were there were board members who were aware who were actually um, leaking information to their favored bidder, and they weren't mm-hmm. telling the board about it. Um, and uh, you know, the court you you don't know want somebody who comes to work wearing a robe. Saying you'd have committed a fraud on the board that's bad no you not be a a lawyer good. to know that uh, there was more recent uh more recent case in the uh involving c b s and biocom um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah you know same, same thing where information was being uh in, in as if I'm recalling the facts of the case correctly information was being provided uh to some but not all the board members not a good thing. interesting yeah
0: so in the 80s we all live through or many of us live through or have heard about hostile takeovers. Today we hear more about shareholder activism. Uh, what accounts for that shift and is this a movement towards I guess is this a movement towards shareholder centric decision making or uh, what do you think about uh, that topic?
1: I have uh, strong opinions on this but let's let's go back to history okay So in the 80s the principal source of discipline uh, from the market was the hostile takeover that is di- disciplining uh, boards and and uh, and management teams was the hostile takeover they then developed very robust um, uh, defenses against the hostile takeover principally the poison pill um, which it is if, if you if you're not familiar with it that's the magical thing that a board can put in to pr- effectively uh, deter Someone from doing a hostile taking over the company going directly to the shareholders and only the board can remove it. Um, so if, if you were, if you wanted to do a hostile takeover of a, of a company, you'd announce the bid, they put in the pill and then you would at the same time announce the proxy contest to remove the board so that you could redeem the pill. All right. Mm -hmm. That, that's, that's uh, hostile takeover 101 in a nutshell. What's, Mm -hmm. what has happened more recently? Uh, is shareholder activism, uh, you know, on, on the part of a variety of different shareholders, and they're, they're different goals. Institutional shareholders, index funds, and whatnot—they uh, like to say, "Do not mistake the fact that we have a follow a passive investment strategy, namely like an index fund does, for the fact that we are not activists on governance." And we have to be activists on governance, they say, because we don't have a choice. We can't just sell—we can't sell out of that stock because we told our investors we would be in that stock because it's in the index, right? Mm-hmm. So, institutional investors are activists on governance subjects. They're things like getting rid of a staggered board and, and the like. The, the, the activism that most people are thinking about, though, is hedge fund activism, which has mm-hmm. financial and operational uh, goals. So, a hedge fund will come in, I like to say, but uh, one of the least favorite phone calls somebody will get is, "Hi, I'm Carl Icahn, and I own one percent of your stuff." <laughs> right? You're uh, like, ah! <laughs> exactly. But the, the 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 hedge funds that are looking for uh, financial goals are thinking about, you know, they're trying to get people to sell a company, they're trying to get people to uh, not accept a bid but go for a higher bid. I call them, it's called bumping, right? Because they want to start the price to be bumped. Uh, they're often uh, asking for a company to to change its capital allocation, largely you know do a big stock buyback, do a, do a special dividend, that kind of thing. Or ultimately, sometimes they're asking for a change in the management. Now what I tell what I tell companies is they don't always have bad ideas. Some of mm-hmm. those are good ideas. and one of the ways to prepare for shareholder activism by hedge funds, uh, is to have, hire somebody like your investment banker, uh, to do a mock attack. Say, if, if, if I, if an activist came into our stock and we're, we're going to complain about things, what would they, what would they say? What would they complain about? And how can we be prepared for that? And sometimes the best way to be prepared for it is to say, that's not a bad idea. Maybe we should do some of that. And I know, I know a couple of companies where they'll have a mock attack. And they will use the learning from the mock attack to inform their strategy discussion, right? Oh, by the way, another, another favorite is uh, you ought to spin off a business, right? Mm-hmm. Or for retail companies, they say, you ought you to do a read of all your property. Uh, you know, th- all that kind of stuff. All right. Now is shareholder activism good or bad? And it, it yeah. If you're right. It, to some degree, it represents an attempt to go from, remember, historically, we had management-centric decision-making to board-centric decision-making. Is it shareholder-centric decision-making? You bet. Uh, that is very often what they're after. And here's why it's a bad idea. Shareholders, unlike directors and officers, are generally not fiduciaries. Mm-hmm. Right? And so they can be proposing something that is in their unbridled self-interest, no matter what the interests of the other shareholders are. And on top of that, especially in a public company, they can get out. So if they come in and say, "You want to do a massive stock buyback," and 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 the board succumbs to that pressure, um, and they do the massive stock buyback, that shareholder who proposed it is probably out of the stock. And when when things turn bad because they, you know used up too much of their capital and their and their cushion uh they're not there to pay the price or put it out way they're not eating their own cooking right mm-hmm. so that's the second bad idea so the other thing is uh shareholders uh activist shareholders are not as in, not as well informed as the board uh and nor should they be i mean if co- companies Companies can withhold material non-public information so long as they're not, it's not pertinent to uh, a decision that they're asking the shareholders to make. And sometimes they, you know, they absolutely should, right? If mm-hmm. if, if they're about to do something strategic and, and strategically important, they may not want to broadcast that prematurely. So the shareholder activist who's pushing for something is probably not as aware of that, I mean, clearly not as aware of that as the board. Uh, and then finally, I like to say, some, just because somebody's a good stock picker doesn't mean they're a good manager, right? Yeah,
0: no, definitely. Like, but my, my, my De- favorite
1: example of Peter Lynch, who was the chief investment officer, mm-hmm. right, of Fidelity, was on a board called Morrison Knudsen, who you probably don't remember, but it's gone because they mm-hmm. did they did a bunch of stupid things. I mean, he was on the board; he was the only he was the only one director, but uh, but he was not he was not able to stand in the way of doing bad thing. He's a great stock picker. But did not really understand that manager, probably.
0: Interesting. So, you have a ton of experience working with CEOs on dealing with difficulties with shareholders and boards. If you had to give one piece of advice to a brand new CEO, someone who has never been a CEO, they're coming in, a warning to those start, maybe starting companies and building out their boards, what's that one thing that you would share to someone? That is such an important piece to get right.
1: I, I'm going I'm to joust with your question and break it into two. In terms of building the board, the CEO should understand, if and to the extent that they have influence on who goes on the board, and they probably will in a private company, greater influence mm-hmm. than a public company, understand what the relationships are between and among the, the various candidates, the incumbents and the newbies. Because if they have, if they have deep relationships and other relationships, it could be that there there can be some some compromising done, and and it can form a bit of a clique within the board, uh, and and with with the risk of frankly creating a varsity junior varsity mix on your board. So understand what the relationships are. After you've got the board together, you know wh- whether you were able to influence who's there or not. Spend time. All right, make make the meetings as productive as interesting as possible. Uh, start as I said earlier. Let them know what you, as the CEO, are really looking for in terms of advice. Where you haven't made up your mind, you know that kind of thing. Let them let them know that they're participating in in the big decision in 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 what you're going to be coming back to them on uh, for a big decision. Spend time between meetings one on one again, substantively, not just socially. Uh, golf might be okay, but if, if I play, Kansas, right. they would all leave the board. Uh, don't let a board member feel legitimately that they're somehow in the second tier or the junior varsity. Everybody, everybody's equal in the boardroom and they should feel that way. Uh, if you've got a, if there's a lead director, either formally or informally or not executive chair, Work with them as your partner. They can help run a lot of interference. Uh, have the board see that you're building a deep management bench. One of the criticisms I've seen of CEOs, public and private, is that you know the beyond beyond the CEO, we don't have anybody, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And that could be because the CEO is not self-assured, uh, but it doesn't reflect well. In, indicate that you're able to adjust your leadership style with your colleagues. According to circumstances, there are, there are a lot of, there are a lot of CEOs who are, are very collaborative and that's good. In fact, that, that was my style as a firm leader. But, but at times of crisis, sometimes you have to be a little more directive. And, and the CEO who, who can, can, can change their style according to the circumstances will, it's a, it's a good, it's a good look, right? Uh, and the board will have more confidence in Um, and then clearly, having unassailable personal integrity is important. I mean, the number of CEOs who've lost their jobs from hashtag me too is stunning, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just one example of personal integrity, but that's a really important.
0: When you've seen uh, on boards and and good governance, what about like the size of the board? Does that matter?
1: Yeah, there, there's actually a lot of uh, sociology on this, social psychology. Mm-hmm. You, you want a board that's big enough to do every, te- to handle all the tasks that it should, uh, you know, big enough to uh, populate committees so that they can, you know, they can operate and, and meet uh, concurrently. But if you have a board that's too big, there's a notion of social loafing, which is that mm-hmm. pe- pe- people don't really pitch in. Uh, they don't feel like they need to do something because somebody else must be doing it, right? So you don't want it to be too big. I, there was a there's there's a bit of a tradition I'd almost call it a tradition. Uh, uh, but the, the typical financial institution has a large board. You worry about mm-hmm. whether or not you know that leads to a bit of social loafing.
0: Yeah, very interesting. So, uh, AI. Uh, that's that seems to be artificial intelligence. Seems to be the hot topic out there. I, how does this apply to boards, or how do you think it will
1: in the future? I'm I'm not the best person to talk about AI. I am I'm the least techie person you know. I I I don't even know how to turn on the television set in our house. Right? Oh, I mean, oh you no, do. Well, <laughs> maybe on a good day, I've seen. I, I don't. know. I'm, I'm sure boards are thinking about and talking about AI. What I know they're absolutely obsessed over is cybersecurity. And
0: mm-hmm. there's
1: probably a connection between the two and AI might relate to all that. The folks are really focused on cybersecurity. Not only a really well-advised board is thinking about their own cybersecurity, but also if they have vendors and other important folks like investment backers that have access and have taken Appropriately information from the company to analyze and sitting on their servers or on their cloud, uh, they need to know what the what the cybersecurity of those vendors is like. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is they, you know, everybody. There, there's the old adage that uh, you know there are two kinds of companies: those that know that have known that know they've been hacked, and those that don't know they've been hacked because everybody's yeah. been hacked. So. What's your preparation for that? Are you doing war games on it? And one of the things I've learned is that it's really important if you're serious about cybersecurity and being able to respond to a hack, it's good to have a relationship with the FBI. Yeah. And, and somebody in the local office. Otherwise they just, you know, they take it down and say, thank you very much.
0: Great, great advice. So last question, you've had a significant career. Yeah. Uh, best advice that you have ever received or that you've ever heard, I guess, for related to the book, CEO Leadership?
1: Overly personal, but the best advice I ever got was to go to law school.
0: <laughs> yeah, there you go. So I was thinking I about a PhD
1: it. and all that stuff. And, and my uh, my college president was Milton Eisenhower, President White Eisenhower's brother. And he Amazing. Said, he said, uh, you know, there's a glut of PhDs, again, child in the sixties. A lot of PhDs. You, you you you'll do well, but you won't be happy with the job. So go to law school, and if you want to teach, you can teach law. That was anyway. Uh no, I I, love that. I think one of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard uh was from uh from a CEO, uh, and he was really talking about himself, uh, which is don't define your self worth solely in terms of your career or title which I which I have passed along at any number of times to college graduations uh, because I think I think that's that that's good advice it, it's it's, yeah. it's a work-life balance notion but it's also your you know keep your own ego intact
0: well excellent advice and a great note to end on Tom this uh, Thank you so much for joining us. We'll have all of the info in the show notes, but CEO leadership is excellent. Uh, As I mentioned, Collaborative Crisis Management is Tom's other book, and it is so, so great. So thank you again, Tom. Thank you, Jeremy. And uh, everybody, thank you for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Take care. Thanks again for listening to The Kara Golden Show. If you would, please give us a review and feel free to share this podcast with others who would benefit And of course, feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of our podcast. Just a reminder that I can be found on all platforms at Kara Golden. And if you want to hear more about my journey, I hope you will have a listen or pick up a copy of my book, Undaunted, which I share my journey, including founding and building Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And thanks everyone for listening. Have a great rest of the week and 2023 and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Thanks for listening.